Welcome to The Pharmacy Benefit, a podcast that highlights the work being done by PBMs across the country to serve millions of patients and consumers with healthcare coverage. I'm J.C. Scott. On this episode, our focus is on prescription drug rebates, how they work, why they work, how they benefit consumers, and why they are currently under attack in the political arena. Joining me to tell us more is Alex Brill. Alex is a health policy researcher and the founder and CEO of Matrix Global Advisors, an economic consulting firm specializing in healthcare, tax, and fiscal policy. He has extensive health policy research experience and previously served on the staff of the House Ways and Means Committee and the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Alex is also the author of a recent study entitled Understanding Drug Rebates and Their Role in Promoting Competition, which we'll talk more about in a minute. Alex, welcome to the Pharmacy Benefit. JC, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And I like to start each podcast by learning a little bit about my guests. And of course, you and I go back a little ways to our time on Capitol Hill. And if I said how long ago that was, I'd be dating us both. So I'm not going to do that. But I've always known you to be someone who prioritizes good public policy based on facts and evidence, focused on the substance more than the politics. For our listeners, tell us how you got into this particular lane of public policy and what interests you in the type of work that you're doing. Sure. Well, again, thanks for having me on. This is a, a great opportunity to talk about the, the issues here. I've been interested in a, in a host of public policy issues, a lot of them in the healthcare space, as you mentioned in your intro, some issues in other areas like tax policy as well. But the underlying theme that connects a lot of my motivation in the research that I conduct is a belief in really an understanding of the impact that the public policy choices that policymakers make can have on the outcomes that they're trying to affect, and in particular, the unintended consequences that policy choices often have. And so whether it's looking at a tax policy matter and thinking about the unintended impact it might have on choices that uh, a, a household might make, or looking at a healthcare policy matter and trying to understand the unintended consequences it might have on insurance design or costs of health care or access to health care. Understanding the problem, identifying a problem that a policymaker wants to address is really only the beginning of the public policy process. And oftentimes as policymakers work to develop solutions, they may not always fully appreciate some of these unintended consequences. So a lot of the work I do is trying to estimate the impacts of a public policy and identify and recognize any unintended consequences that policy might also have. That's super important as we all work with policymakers to sort of play out what's going to happen on on things that they propose. And I want to come back to that theme later on because we'll talk a little bit about some ideas for changing the prescription drug rebate system and what those may or may not do in terms of drug pricing, impact on the affordability of health insurance and those kind of issues. But Alex, maybe we should level set a little bit for, for our listeners. So can, can we start just with a basic question? I, I, I suspect most people have a general idea what a rebate is, like if they bought a car or, 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 or been in another consumer situation and gotten a rebate. But for those who may not know what rebates are specifically in the context of prescription drugs, how, how would you describe it? So a rebate is a payment between parties engaged in a transaction and the rebate occurs if certain contractual obligations are met. And so what I mean by that is there's an agreement, in this case, between the pharmaceutical manufacturer and the PBM, uh, where the manufacturer offers or agrees to provide a rebate 
under certain conditions. And if those conditions are met, then the rebate occurs. Those conditions are set forward in an agreement, and those agreements are confidential. So I can't speak to the details of all the types of things that might go into that agreement, but oftentimes what we're generally speaking about are certain sales volumes. So the agreement might include an understanding that if a certain amount of product is sold, then that would allow the rebate to occur. And that rebate has the effect of lowering the net price of of the product, in this case of the pharmaceutical product. So there's an initial price, like a list price, we call it a WAC price. And then there's a negotiated rebate, which is provided if the terms of the contract of the agreement are realized in accordance with, with those terms. That's what the rebate is. So in essence, it's a contractual arrangement. The rebate is almost serving as a discount that brings down the net cost of the product for the purchaser of, of the drug. And I often am guilty of using the words rebate and discount interchangeably. I know technically that is not accurate. How would you distinguish rebate and discount? I'm also inclined to use those words interchangeably, and I'm trying to, to hold back and, and not make that mistake here. Um, in my mind, the, the difference is the, the conditionality of the rebate. So the discount would come, in my mind, up front. So something is on sale. You go to the store, it's on sale. It's discounted. You buy it. You don't pay the price that's on the sticker. You pay 10% off or 50% off at the end of the season, whatever it may be. The rebate is tied to some performance, some other action that has to occur, oftentimes a certain quantity or volume of sales. And then at the back end, the rebate occurs once those contract terms are met. And so that, in my mind, that's the, the distinction is sort of the, ti- is the timing and the conditions associated with the terms. That makes sense. And not to oversimplify it, but, but given that we represent PBMs here at PCMA, I know a lot of what they do is representing employers and other health plan sponsors and through those health plan sponsors, all of the enrollees in a health plan. So they have the, the purchasing power of a whole lot of people. And what you're explaining is they're able to then use that purchasing power to negotiate a reduction in the net cost of a drug from a drug manufacturer by essentially saying, we're going to be able to help drive a lot of volume to this drug if the price or the cost is low enough for it. That's right. And unlike in the retail market, a Walmart or a Target or somebody where they're making purchases directly, they're promising at the time of the agreement to purchase some large volume of goods and then put them on their shelves, they're negotiating a discount in that context from the manufacturer. Here, because the nature of the transactions and the need for a prescription to occur and and those uncertainties, the rebate comes after the volumes are demonstrated to have occurred. So let's take a step forward then and talk about the connection between that rebate and the drug price that is set by the manufacturer. Are, are the two things linked beyond what you just described, which is there is the, the list price and then the rebate is effectively a reduction in, in the cost off that list price. But do you see a causal relationship between the rebate mechanism and the setting of the list price? Very briefly, I'll say no. I don't, but I, and I will add that that is the allegation that is before us as, as folks in the policy space. So the allegation is that these two things are linked. The allegation is, is that the reason, the cause of increasing prices for prescription drugs, the cause is the rebate. And so the rebate keeps going up, and therefore 
the price of the drug must also continuously go up as well. And the pressure that comes, so the direction is that the rebates are forced um, to get larger and therefore the price is forced to get larger too. It's an interesting idea. Maybe I'm jumping ahead, but that's the subject of this uh, of this paper that you mentioned in the in the introduction was to try to investigate that question or that that allegation and to see is there evidence in support of that. Talk a little bit more about the paper because that was exactly what I was getting at to to understand what you looked at and and how you got to those conclusions because I'm I'm a fairly simple person. And so I, I look at some of these things anecdotally and recognize there's a whole lot of drugs out there where rebates aren't involved, whether it's a brand new drug that's just been introduced, whether it's a drug on the medical side, which is not the same as you know the drugs that are, are, are managed by PBMs, no rebates, but still the same trends in prices. So you know, I, I hear that allegation as you described it and, and, and don't automatically see that connection. But, but you did the homework on this. What did you find? That's right. So the way the paper is structured, the way the data analysis in this paper is structured is we tried to create two buckets of drugs, two lists of drugs, and then to analyze each bucket separately. And the question we're asking is, is do we see more price inflation in the bucket of drugs where those for which we expect there to be rebates? than in the other bucket of drugs, which is the bucket for which we do not expect there to be rebates. So the trick here is, as I mentioned earlier, the agreements that that establish a rebate are confidential. So I don't know, as a guy on the outside, with certainty what the rebates are between any PBM and any drug manufacturer. That's, um, That's private information. So we had to come up with a methodology to sort the drugs that we identified into these two buckets, the likely rebated bucket and the likely not rebated bucket. And the way we did that is we looked at the benefit designs from three of the largest PBMs and came up with an algorithm whereby we were able to assign drugs into one of these two buckets. Now, there's lots and lots of drugs out there, of course. We looked at a sample of drugs in each bucket because we didn't want to deal with any drug that had a generic. We didn't want to deal with any drug that launched during the period of time in which we were analyzing. Those sorts of things narrowed down our list. But we ended up with two groups of of drugs, the, the likely rebated and the likely not rebated drugs. And then we went and looked at their prices, their WAC prices, their list prices. And we compared over a couple of years how those prices changed over time. And the bottom line is the two did about the same. We saw price increases, some large, some small, in both groups. And so we don't see the evidence that, oh, it's the group that's rebated where all the prices are rising and the drugs that are likely not rebated, oh, they just, you know, they were just flatlined. It's, it's quite the opposite. We see basically two very similar lines um, and the paper illustrates that. It's hard to illustrate it on a podcast. But if you looked at the paper, you'd see two kind of similar lines that, you know, where in both buckets there are products that, that jump a lot and there are products that jump just a little bit. But the impressive fact is how similar those two lines are. So that's super helpful, Alex. So in other words, you are not seeing a causal relationship between the rebate and the price setting based on those trends that you see in the rebated drugs and the non-rebated drug categories? We're not seeing a causal relationship. We're not seeing any relationship. We're not even seeing a correlation. We're seeing that the non-rebated and the rebated drugs are both 
taking on average price increases over time and that those price increases are pretty similar. So if, if that, that is helpful, I also hear you say that and it tells me, so rebates aren't, aren't actually doing anything to lower the drug companies list prices. We're continuing to see those trends on rebated drugs and non-rebated drugs. What benefit then does the rebate provide if I'm a patient, if I'm a consumer, if I'm a buyer and user of a prescription drug? We see the drug prices rising, as you said, um, across the board, depends on the drug. Obviously, there's a variation from drug to drug, but we see overall drug prices rising. And that's the list price, right? That's, That's the sticker price. The effect of the rebates is to mitigate that and to hold down those increases, in in essence, to create what's the net price, the price after the rebate. Those price increases have been less, significantly less in some instances than the WAC price increase. And the slower growth of the prices in those markets means there's been fewer increase in planned premiums for employers or for employees. And that's a constraint on the overall growth of the market. Lower premiums are obviously allowing employers to put more compensation into wages and and other benefits throughout the whole economy. So in in some ways, the benefit for the consumer, a little bit dependent on the employer or the plan sponsor deciding how to use the savings that come from the rebate. But many times it makes the cost of health coverage more affordable for the employer and for the enrollee on the plan. The, The employer may choose to use it to add new parts to the benefit, to lower cost at the pharmacy counter for their enrollees. It's really up to the individual plan sponsor, but ultimately it's adding affordability in one way or another. That's right. It's, it's, it's a choice of the plan sponsor at what to do with those savings relative to a world where those savings didn't occur. I think generally people associate those savings with holding down premiums, but you're absolutely right. Those savings could be used to lower copays for patients, or they could be used to, to add benefits to patients as well. And you said at the top that a lot of the work you do is to look at the unintended consequences of public policy proposals. And the last administration, we saw a proposal labeled the rebate rule, an idea to reform the rebate system in a way in Medicare to require any rebates to flow entirely to the point of sale rather than to the plan sponsor to do the things that you just described. And that proposal seemed in some ways to be informed by the misperception that you were talking about in terms of that lack of correlation between rebates and drug prices. Can you talk a little bit about why you had concerns? Did you have concerns with that particular proposal? And if getting at the rebate system isn't the right way to get it addressing the challenge with drug prices, what is the right way in your mind? Yeah. So first I'll say, I think, and maybe I'm being too charitable here, but I mean, I think that one can make the case that the rebate rule proposal comes out of a concern about rising drug prices. And there is a widespread concern about rising drug prices. Which prices people are concerned about is not always obvious to me. Are they concerned about the rising list price of drugs? Are they concerned about the rising out-of-pocket costs of drugs? There are different prices in the system, of course. But it was an attempt to respond to the public's concern about drug prices, whether that, that concern is legitimate or not. But it is a policy that is just chock full of unintended consequences. So a policy that was intended to say, oh, there are all these rebate dollars in the system. That seems like 
wasteful. Let's get the rebate dollars out of the system and then the prices will fall. That was the, the kind of the dream. When the actuaries looked at that policy, the actuaries who work at HHS, the administration's own actuaries, who are responsible for estimating these impacts, for scoring these policies, they said that by taking out rebates, you're not lowering the prices, you're likely increasing the prices. That some of the rebate will be, what would otherwise be the rebate, will be retained by the manufacturer. So that's going to raise their revenues. Some of the rebate will be used in other ways at, at the point of sale. But on net, what we would expect to see would be higher Medicare spending and higher profits for the drug manufacturers. Not that all those revenues, all those rebates rather, would be directly and fully passed through to the consumer as was hoped. And part of that, I assume, is what you were explaining earlier, that the manufacturer's incentive to bring down the net cost of the drug through the form of a rebate is usually conditioned on an expectation of higher sales volume, right? They're going to sell more of their products or they're willing to do that at a lower price point. And if you change that system in the way that was proposed, it takes away that leverage, that incentive that comes from competition with other drug manufacturers and has the consequence you just described. Yeah, it takes away one of the tools, right? And so you're going to, what, what the policymakers were saying is, we're going to expect more competition and we're going to take away some of the tools that are used to drive down prices. But we expect that the market to work better with fewer, with one hand tied behind its back or something like that, with, with, with fewer tools at its disposal. And um, what, what I think the actuaries understood, I think what a, a number of economists who have looked at this understand, is that by forcing those, what would have been rebate dollars, into point of sale discounts creates a level of transparency that, that actually can allow the manufacturers to what's called tacit collusion. So it's not something that, it's not necessarily something that's illegal, like we think of as collusion as being illegal. But as they know more about the prices um, in the marketplace, sometimes discounts can be expected to fall. We'd have fewer discounts, fewer, yeah, in this case, discounts or rebates, fewer higher net prices. And so that's how the manufacturers are expected to be able to retain a portion of what today are rebate dollars. And that's definitely not going to be lowering overall spending in the healthcare sector if we're allowing more of those rebates to be retained by the manufacturer. That's helpful. And as you describe that, it's sort of like giving competitors in the market, manufacturing competitors, insight into each other's business strategies in ways that allows them to more favorably game the system for themselves. So I'll give you the platform. If that's not the right way to get at the drug price challenge that policymakers want to get at, what do you think is the right way? Well, it's not easy. I'll say that. There's not some obvious, simple, single solution to the concern. I think there's a number of small incremental policies that need to be pursued that can help address this challenge. A lot of those are in the competition space. And so what I mean by that is policies that facilitate competition between and among manufacturers. In one vein, this means thinking about the generic drug industry and ensuring that they have a clear pathway, a low-cost system, as they do, but preserving the process by which generic manufacturers can work their application to the FDA. It involves making sure that, that the patent system is such that gaming can't be employed. So we need to have a patent system. We need to protect the intellectual property 
of the innovators so that they have the incentives to bring the new drugs to market. We also need to make sure that that system is not abused to create new patents late in the in the life of, a, of an old product that keep generic competition away so that we want to have generics enter the market at an appropriate time. We want to have lots of generics enter the market. We don't want to have just one generic. We want to that we have a system, you know, the 180 day exclusivity for the first generic. That's a good system that encourages the, that barrier to be broken down. But ultimately, we want to have a robust generic industry with lots of players. And we want to have a robust competition on the brand side. We don't want to make it so difficult that only one brand manufacturer is able to hold a monopoly in a brand to brand sense for a long period of time either. And so those are all incremental changes. They have to do with payment policy. They have to do with the FDA regulatory policy. They have to do with making sure there's good information. One of the newer areas in this space is the biosimilar market. So these are competitors to the brand reference biologic products. That's a very exciting market, I think, because our biologic drugs are some of our most expensive drugs. They're also some of our best drugs. But being able to find a a clear and predictable pathway for biosimilars to not only be approved by the FDA, but overcome the patent challenges that are out there and have the you know acceptance and support from the medical profession and the prescribers. All those are barriers that we need to, to work at incrementally. We do all those things, we're gonna have more companies trying to bring more products, competing with each other, talking to the PBMs, trying to get good deals and promote sales volumes of their products at the lowest price possible, that's going to be a key way for bringing cost savings to the system. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me from where I sit, <laughs> Alex. But as you said, there are a lot of pieces to that. And of course, there's a balance. We, we have to recognize the importance of innovation in the, in the drug space and the ability for that to be rewarded. So companies are incentivized to continue to participate in the market. But that being said, what you said there at the end is is right. How do we continue to drive for the lowest net price, the lowest net cost, so that people have more affordability and better access to the medicines that they need? Um, makes a lot of sense to me. I just pick up on your point about innovation. I mean, because it is so important. And when we think about like, what's the goal? What's the optimal? What's the best price we could have for pharmaceuticals? It's not $1, right? I mean, these are really important medicines that were really hard to develop. A lot of risk and money was put on the line to bring these medicines, and they provide tremendous value to patients. And somebody is going to need to pay those costs. Those costs are, are real, and they deserve to be paid. What we need to guard against is you know, the excess returns, and that's the balance. And the balance is very difficult. It's very difficult as a, as a matter of public policy when to say, yes, we want to encourage innovation, we want to encourage the profits and the, and the return on the risk that's taken, but to also have some breaks some parameters around those edges. It's, it's hard for policymakers to set those parameters properly, but I do think we can do better than we're doing right now. I think you said that so well, Alex. It is about finding that right balance. I'm encouraged because there's folks like you who are taking the time to look at the facts, evidence, and data, trying to do that in, a, in a, an objective way, play out the implications of public policy so that we can find that balance to get to the right public policy outcomes. So thank you for the work you're doing and thanks for spending time with us today. Absolutely. This was a great conversation. And I think our listeners now probably have a better idea of how prescription drug rebates work and benefit the system. 
Thank you to everyone for listening. I encourage you to subscribe to The Pharmacy Benefit and download all of our podcast episodes. You can do that on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. I'm JC Scott. Thanks for joining me. Thank mm-hmm. you.